Amen. Well, listen, Paul had called the Philippian church to, to be unified with each other within that body of believers. But if they were going to obtain unity and maintain that unity, uh, they would have to have humility amongst the members, a humility that considers other people as more important than yourself, a humility that looks not only to meet your own needs, but the needs of other people. And then, and, then, and then after calling us out on that and telling us what kind of unity is, he gives the ultimate example of what this humility looks like by giving us the life of Christ. He said that Christ humbled himself when he was in heaven by not holding on the rights of his as God, but rather became a man. He stepped down even further that when he was on earth, he came as a man, but he came even more so as a servant and then he humbled himself even in death, even to the point of death, the Bible says. It was his obedience and his humility, but not just any death. He, he died the most humiliating death imaginable, a death on a cross. The point was that Jesus couldn't have humbled himself any further than what he did. And likewise, in the same way, God couldn't have exalted him any higher than he did. He not only raised him up from the dead, but he raised him up into heaven, seated him at the right hand of the Father, which was the place of honor, ultimate honor. And then he gave him a name that was above every name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And that's beautiful theology, beautiful doctrine. And, 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 and you know, there's time for us to really pontificate on that and think of it. That's what Paul wants us to do. But Paul never allows us to remain there. He never allows us to, be, to just sit around and just talk deep theology all day. The point of that theology is to take it and to live it out in our everyday life, to allow it to transform us. To, to, in, in another way, in the way Paul says it, it we need to go to work. Uh, we need to work this out is what he will say. So this morning, we want to take a look at, uh, at three reminders that Paul gives us concerning this work of working what God has done in us out in our everyday lives. So three things we want to recognize. First of all, we want to recognize that there is hard work to be done. There is hard work to be done in each and every one of our lives. Is that enough said? Can we say amen to that? Lots of hard work ahead of us. Now notice verse 12, and we'll unpack this. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved. Now, what he's saying there in essence is in light of all that I've just told you, in light of all of the talk about humility and humbling yourself before God, just as Christ, in light of all that, here's what I want you to do. And he says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my absence, but much more in my, or excuse me, not only in my presence, but also all the more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, remember, the Philippian church was a model church. They were, a, they were a mature church. They were the type of church that we and every other church should strive to be like, to, to live like them, to believe like them. They had a long track of being incredibly and impeccably obedient to God as they would ascribe and submit themselves to the teaching of Paul. The word of God would come to Paul. Paul would give them the instruction and these people would obey. And he says, he says, you were especially obedient when I was there with you. Now, remember that sometimes can be a bad thing. Sometimes people can just want to honor people and live for the honor of men. And so they act one way in front of them, but they act completely different when they're gone. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. 
These people knew that their ultimate reason for living unto God was because they wanted to glorify God. They wanted to do what was right because they loved him. But just remember, a secondary appropriate motivation for a believer in Jesus Christ is for us to honor those who pour into us, moms, dads, uh, preachers, pastors, Sunday school teachers, whatever, to honor them as they teach you the word of God. And the way that we honor them and we bring them is by bringing them joy by, guess what? By obeying what it is that God has commanded us to do. When we do that, so Paul's heart is full of joy over them because they've been so obedient when he's been there. But now he knows it's gonna become much more difficult. Now he's no longer with them. So in essence, what he's saying is, hey, listen, when it was easy, when I was there, when we were all you know, holding hands around the campfire singing Kumbaya in great unity, it was easy to be humble before each other and be united. He says, but now things are far more difficult. I'm not there with you to help you personally. And now there is strife that's beginning to raise up within the church. In essence, what he's saying is, hey, listen, we need to work on not only being obedient during the easy times when it's easy, but we need to really work in the areas of great difficulty. Uh, you know, I've, I've said this before. If you've been around long enough, you know, I've said this. I've made the statement that you really learn a lot about what people know in easy times, but you really begin to learn what people truly believe in the midst of difficulty and hardship. You really, really do. Like, for a example, just to throw a couple examples out there, it would not be for any of us. We, most of us probably do not struggle so much with stealing and, and breaking into people's homes and taking stuff and taking money. A lot of us would probably very boldly get up and proclaim the truth of God's command, thou shalt not steal. That's, that's not a problem. It's not an issue for many of us. But the reason is because you have everything that you need. And because you have everything you need, there's not this compulsion to go and take it from somebody else who has it when you don't. It's a completely different thing to obey that truth when you are impoverished and you and your children are at the point of death and you feel like the only way to be able to feed your starving child is then to be able to go and steal. Do you see how it's, diffi- it's more difficult in that second circumstance than the first. It's kind of like, you know, to say, hey, listen, uh, you need to love your spouse. Man, that is so easy to do when you're getting married at the moment, the wedding day, right? Hey, you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. I do. I really, really do. Look how beautiful she is. Three months later, love your wife as Christ loves the church. And you're like, dude, that's hard. That's really, really hard right? For young people, they tell them, listen, you need, to, you need to honor your mother and father by obeying and doing what they tell you to do. Well, it's really easy when the parents are sitting right here and they just kind of tell you to, hey, listen, uh, you, know, you know, close your mouth when you're eating, right? It's much different when you get older and there are things that you want to do and they tell you expressly not to do it and they're nowhere to be found to be able to hold you accountable. So what he's saying in essence is, again, is listen, you are so good at being obedient at things that are easy in times of easy, of sins that you don't really struggle with, but where this work needs to be done is in the areas where you and I struggle, in the areas of where you and I find ourselves in difficulty. And so he goes on, he says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Now, in order to understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand what he is not saying. 
Paul is not in any way, shape, or form saying, hey, go out there and work to gain your salvation before God. Look, we know that Paul is a grace guy. We know that he gets it. Why? Because he wrote it. Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by grace through faith alone. It's not of ourselves. Now, we can't boast in it. It's a gift of God that he's ultimately given to us. And so, so what he finds, he, he's not saying that we need to earn our salvation. He's not saying work for salvation. He's saying to work from salvation. Uh, let me say it kind of in a couple of different ways. He, he's saying, listen, now that you were born again, that God saved you, now what you need to do is who you now are in Christ is work in uh, that salvation out in every single area of your life. Now that you've been redeemed, now that you've been transformed, now every area of your life needs to be transformed. Let me give you a different picture. It's kind of like, um, it, well, let me just say this. Before God saves us, when we're lost, everything in us, everything about us is in direct opposition to God. Get that? My thoughts, my actions, my desires, everything in me, the Bible says, is as Dirty, filthy, leprous rags. It's Romans 3. Nobody does what is right. Nobody is righteous. We're not seeking after God when we're lost. We're running away from him as far and as hard as we possibly can. All of our emotions, all of our thoughts, all of our wants, all of our speech is away from him. He saves us, and directly, immediately, a miracle begins at the point of justification. And now, instead of going this way, we're completely flipped around. And instead of running to sin and self, now God, through his miracle of grace, has turned us, and now we're pointing and headed towards God, a completely different direction, with a desire in our heart to follow him. There's a difficulty with it, though, and that's inertia. It's inertia. I don't know if any of you deal with inertia. The older that I get and the bigger my waistline gets, uh, the more I struggle with it. I used to be able to cut on a dime when I was really athletic and young and slim, I used to be able to run, start, go, go back the other way, no problem. Now, there's a lot more inertia going on, right? You run and you stop, and I start heading the other way, but there's parts of me, especially in this area, that keep wanting to go that way, yes? And so what he's, in essence, saying is, hey, listen, here's the difficulty about working out salvation, is you are truly, who you truly are has changed, but all of your thoughts and your flesh and your desires and your actions that are sinful, all they've ever known is this direction. Now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got to do incredibly difficult work to take every single one of those things in subjection and to begin to relearn how to live, how to think, and how to love and what it is that we desire and point them in the direction of God. And so that's what Paul is trying to say, and, 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 and we, we need to do it. We need to do it in fear and troubling. He, in trembling, he says. Remember what the goal of Christianity is. The goal of Christianity is not to get out of hell and get into heaven. God's goal of salvation and saving people like you and I is found in Romans 8, 29, which says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so the reason that God saves us is because he wants us to become more like his son in every area of our life, and that takes a lot of working out. It takes a lot of working out. And so Paul is calling us, he says, listen, there's work to do. Now, many believers forget this truth. I cannot tell you how many believers that have kind of this attitude where they sit there and they show up at church and they sit down and they say to themselves, all right, go God, have at it. 
Do what you want to do with me. Change me. I've even prayed, God, that you would change things. And all they do is come and sit in a, in a, in a church service. It doesn't take a great deal of work to come and sit. Uh, there was a pastor that I, I read here recently, Francis Chan. You're probably, you might be familiar with him. In one of his books, he says, one of the biggest mistakes that we make as Christians is thinking that church is a theater, that we come to the theater to be entertained. And we either go, yeah, that was good, that was entertaining, or boo, you know, throw the preacher out. You know, throw the bum out, we want something better. And he says, when all the time, he says, the church is a gym. It's a place to come and work, a place to come and sweat. As Paul says, it's a place that we come and we work out our salvation. Let me give you at least two parts of what it looks like to work out your salvation. I think two things, at least what it takes, is first of all, diligent, accurate, careful study of the Word of God. Diligent, careful, accurate study of the Word of God. Part of that is, of course, coming to a church where the Word of God is not just talked about, not preached about, but is actually preached. You're actually in the text of Scripture. That's key. And it's being done very carefully. And, and the reason it's carefully is because you're watching to make sure that it's done carefully. That's what I love about our church. I've had, I have a lot of accountability here. Amen? And so lots of accountability. Wait a minute. Did you say, no, that's not really what I meant. Thank you. And people are so unbelievably uh, gracious, at least some of them. And so um, and so, what we have here is 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 working diligently, but yet people kind of sit there and they think through osmosis. As I just come to church once a week or twice a week or three nights a week, three a week, and just hear this text, that all of a sudden it's going to get in me. My preaching is not sufficient for all that you need to become more like Christ. It will help. It's partially there. I know some people are looking, then what are you here for, right? And so it's not sufficient in that it's everything that you need. We must, in order to work out this salvation, to become more and to be progressively sanctified, that is to look more like Jesus Christ, you and I must definitively disciplined word and the word of God every single day. It's the first part. Second part is probably just that much more difficult. You know, I don't have to be disciplined in your study, but you have to learn to die to the flesh. You have to learn to die to the flesh each and every day, a little at a time. Let me tell you what happens. You get inside of the Word of God, and you begin to study. And it's funny, because I can always tell when people are filled up with pride, and myself is filled up with pride, because I'm a little bit arrogant, and it's a clear indication that I haven't been in the Word of God. Because when I get in the Word of God, as James says, it's like a mirror, and it shows very clearly who I am, and it begins to show all the warts and all the problems and the things that are not like Jesus Christ. Anybody else feel that way? People are like, yeah, I think I'm fine. I'm like, have you read the word lately? And you begin to read through it, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm terrible. What in the world's going on? I got so much work to be able to do. How am I going to do all of this? And then here's what it looks like. Here, it's as practical as I can make it. It's you coming face to face that you are not who you ought to be and then for you to understand that my desire is to be what God calls me to be, but at the same exact time, knowing everything within your flesh has a desire to go in the opposite way. Dying to the flesh is to sit there and to act on what you know to be true, even when all of your emotions and even some of the desires are pulling you the other way. And that happens every day of your life until the point of glorification when God gives you a new body and you are with him in heaven. That's the work that is ultimately before us. Let me ask you this question. How many of us have work to do? Raise your hand. Lots of work to do, lots of hard work. We can't wait. We've got to begin. Second thing that we see in the text is not only do we recognize that there is hard work to do, number two, we need to recognize who works in you. 
and who works in me. See, looking at all this, you can become a little bit depressed. You could look at this and go, my goodness, I am not the person I ought to be, but praise God, we're not the first people we used to be, amen, because of the grace and the mercy of God. But we could begin to think, how am I going to work all this out? How am I going to do all this? And so Paul wants to come, and he wants to encourage us, and he wants us to know that you're not alone. You're not working this out alone. God is with you, working with you. Even more so, he's working in you to be able to ultimately work this out. Look, it's true. It's a true statement to say that God is a sovereign God, which means, listen, he does not need your help or my help. He could do anything and everything apart from us. Would you agree with that statement? But it is equally true to say that you and I can do nothing apart from God. John chapter 15, verse 5 says that. Now, what does it mean you can do nothing? Well, it's not absolutely nothing. We can sin and we can rebel against God just fine without Jesus' help. He's not going to help us in that. But what the, what the scripture is saying is we could do nothing of value. We could do nothing of true that is true. We could do nothing that is glorifying to God apart from the help of God working in us and working through us. And so this is how Paul says. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're not working to salvation. Get this again. We're not trying to work so God loves us more. He already demonstrated his love in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Now we work from that love. We work from that salvation as God's working in us. And how does he work in us? Two, two ways specifically that Paul mentions here. There's many other, but two ways. He says both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Two ideas, all right? Here's how God works in us so that we can work out what he's working in. First of all, he gives us the desire and the will to do the will of God. That's huge. Because before you and I were born again, we had no desire to know God. We had no desire to follow God. We had no desire to obey God. Some people say, no, I've always been religious. Yeah, but you've served and your, your mindset was of a false, graven image of a God that is not the true God. The Bible says when we are lost, we want nothing to do with that true God. We are at enmity with God. We're running the other way. Well, what God does in the miracle of salvation is he gives you now a new wanter. He gives you a new will. He gives you a new desire now to follow him. That's not something you mustered up yourself. Some of you are sitting there going, man, I come to church every week. I read my Bible every week. Before you were born again, did you desire those things? No, not at all. What did you do? Just one day the light come on and go, I need to be a better person. This is good. If that's the case, you've missed it. For most of us, we're here this morning because we want to desperately be here. We want to know more about this Savior, and this is a gift of God. That's what he's driven inside of you, the desire to do his will. And it's not only the desire, but he also gives you the power to do it. That's what he means by to work. He has given every believer the Spirit of God that that comes upon them at the point of salvation, and now we have not only the desire, but the ability to do what God is calling us and commanding us to be able to do. Do you see that? It's all the grace of God. Let me give you a picture of it from the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Listen very carefully. We see both salvation and this process of sanctification that we're talking about in this passage. God says to the people who are running away from him, who are disobedient to him, that want nothing to do with him, he talks about the miracle of salvation and his work in sanctifying us to be like his son Jesus. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your your uncleanness and from all your idols and I will cleanse you of. That's salvation. 
Let me tell you, that, let me show you pro, the, the, what God does in, in sanctification. See, there's a problem for us, and the danger for us is for us, in, in light of all of this idea of working, is to think that there's God's part, and then there's our part. And the danger to think that God's part is to save us, it's our part alone just to be able to work out and do all the right things, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus says, you can't do anything apart from me. God has to be doing it. So listen to the second part. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you hear what he said? Not only did he graciously save you as a miracle of himself when you're running from him and you wanted nothing to do with him, you said, but I repented and believed, but it's because he gave you the free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Did you have to repent and believe? Absolutely. But who was behind it leading and granting you that gift of salvation? Jesus Christ himself. And then he says, but when you're saved, God begins at that point, not only at your salvation, but then he continues to work in you. That is by giving you new, fresh desires. That's what he says. I'll give you a new heart, he says. I'll let you begin to love things that you never loved before. I'll cause you to hate things that you never hated before. And you're sitting there going, why am I so radically different? A lost world looks at you and goes, why are you so radically different? It's because of the incredible work that God does in regenerating our heart. Then he says, not only will I give you the desires, but I will also, also, also give you the ability to do it. See, that's what the law could not do. The law could tell us what to do, but the law could not give us the desire, and the law could not help us to be able to do it. But it's what Jesus Christ's grace was able to do. What law could not do, the grace of Christ would do. The grace of Christ comes in and gives, not only commands us to live righteous lives, but he changes our heart to desire it, and he gives us the ability to be able to do it. Beautiful, beautiful picture there. Now, I've heard people object. Now, wait just a minute, preacher. Does that mean that God is forcing us against our will? Does that mean he's making us do something that we don't want to do, all for his selfish gain and for his good pleasure? I don't know if I want to serve a God like that. Well, let me answer the question. Um, is, are we working against our nature and are we working against our will? The answer to that is no. No. Why? Because God graciously changed our desire and changed our nature listen you will always live according to your desire your will and according to your nature god in saving you changed all of that and you better be instead of criticizing god for that we should be grateful for that because if he didn't change us we could not have eternal life we read this here's why matthew chapter 7 verse 21 Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, finish it with me, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Is that passage, is Jesus saying the only people to be saved who are people who work really hard and do the right things? Absolutely not. He's saying those people who are born again are demonstrated, show, illustrate that they are born again and that God has done a regenerative work in their life because they are now wanting and able to obey God. Does it mean perfection? No. We begin to grow a little bit at a time from the point that God saves us all the way out to the point of our glorification in God when we die and when we are with him. That's encouraging. Are we called to work and work hard? Yes. But guess what? We're not alone. We're merely working out what God is so faithful to work in us. Were you with me? I could tell you're very bored. So let's get to the third point as quickly as possible. 
Listen, that's really sound theology, and some of you are going to go like, I wonder how this all works. Go back to the CD. That's how it works, okay? Uh, Here we go. Third thing, recognize a much-needed area of work. So this is where it gets exciting. You've slept through all the theology. Let's get to the practicality of things, shall we? And so here we are, verse 14. Here's how it applies. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. All right, there you go. All right, here we go. Another lights message again. Mike's going to get on to us about complaining. Nope, this is Paul. This is why we do expository preaching, because eventually we'll get to it. All right, and so we get to it here, and it's kind of interesting, because of all the different myriad of explanations or applications Paul can give, he tells them, and he brings the application of where they need to work this out specifically in their lives. An area of work that they need is in the area of grumbling and complaining. Now, this tells me something. First of all, it tells me that this is a common problem with God's people. How do I know that? Well, if, if you're writing like Paul is, he's trying to make this as succinct as he possibly can. It's a letter, you know, papyri is expensive. And so he's writing this out and he doesn't want to take too long. And he's thinking to himself, what illustration can I give to really just connect with everybody? If I'm here to sit there and go, listen, you're living in that $2 million mansion. You need to sell it for glory of God. Everyone said, amen, except for the one person that has the $2 million mansion, right? And so everybody leaves going, man, I feel spiritual. I don't have a $2 million mansion He sits there and goes, I'm going to give you an illustration that every single one of you deal with and every single one of us deal with. This is an area we need to work and we need God's help to help us. What is that? It is in the area of grumbling and disputing. Grumbling is just general complaining. You ever do that? Don't say no. Please don't say no. Right? We, um, I've learned this last week in looking at this. I started counting all the times that I grumble. It's a complaint. It's amazing. I'm so good at complaining that I complain about people complaining all the time. You know, I'm so sick of this complaining. I can't stand everybody's, no, nobody's happy. They're all complaining. I'm like, wow, I'm complaining about people complaining, right? And it's, and it's, it's you know, it's just, it's kind of like your groove there, right? I mean, and, and lots of times we don't even think about it. It's, it's hot in here. It's cold in here. Hey, man, my, my spouse, man, they're just not doing what they're all supposed to be doing. Man, I just wish I had a little bit more money. Boy, this sermon really stinks. All right, so a lot of complaining kind of going on. And, and so he, he tackles them on this. And the fact that Paul addresses grumbling and disputing not only shows that it's a common problem, but he also shows that it's a serious problem. Whenever I'm trying to navigate people through ministry, and it, I'm, I'm not talking about full-time ministry, any kind of serving in the church, the one thing, it's so sad to see. They're so excited to get in there, and they so want to be able to help. And they get in there, and they're all fired up, and they want to do everything. And then all of a sudden, the first complainer comes to them and begins to complain about the work that they're doing. And all of a sudden, they are shell-shocked. It, have you ever felt this before, right? Maybe it's even in your job. You're sitting there going, whoo, how do you like that? Well, it's a little crooked, right? And you're like, well, it's a ramp. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, you know, you have people that are complaining all, all the time. And, and then here's how we deal with folks to try to encourage them. We, we tell them, we go, brother, don't worry about it. Everywhere in this world, there's complainers. People are going to complain. Every church, even one of the greatest churches that ever existed, the church at Philippi, he goes, just do it. And so we do that so that the person doesn't fall out of working, right? We just kind of belittle it. Man, just stay the pace. Keep working. You just keep doing what you're ultimately doing. And so you try to encourage them that way. But in belittling that to encourage that believer, it's not to belittle the seriousness of what Paul is saying here when he talks about grumbling and disputing. By the way, grumbling deals with everything. Disputing deals with petty dialoguing that calls everything into question. Okay, let me explain something at Celebration, and this is the same way with our home. No questions are off base. 
I grew up in a tradition that if you ever questioned anything, like why do we do that or why do we believe this or these people believe this and everything, you were almost shamed as though that you were questioning some, some perfect authority somewhere. And, 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 and my questioning some of the time was just merely, I just want to know the answer. I just want to be able to figure this out. And so people need to be able to say, hey, mom and dad, why do we, why do we believe this? Oh, be quiet and just believe. It's a gift. Just take it and receive it, right? And so then they go off to school, and they're like, hey, does anybody else get to answer my, my, my problems? And then the atheist science teacher goes, I'll answer them for you. We don't want that at all. It's, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask, why do we do what we do? Even in our new members class, we give kind of a basic theology, and then we guess that this is how we're working it out. We want you to know how that works to be able to answer your questions on this. But there's, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about this continual, this petty dialoguing that calls everything into question. It's like a person can't do anything without somebody being critical and go, why is he doing it that way? Or why is she doing it that way? And what it demonstrates is a divisive spirit that's unwilling to be able to submit to leadership that God has placed before them. That's what he's ultimately talking about. That's really the context. Most likely, most scholars believe that the problem that they're having of this, uh, this, this complaining and everything else is against the leaders in the church. That's why in chapter 1 and verse 1, he gives kind of this strange address to the overseers and the deacons. And most likely, they think that this is really the cause of the problem, that the people whining, complaining, and then, and then pulling apart and dissecting everything that they're ultimately doing. But it's not wrong to ask, but that's not what he's ultimately talking about here. And so, so the deal is, it's serious. It's bigger than what we think. It's not what one author says, complaining and grumbling and disputing is not a minor blemish of morality. It's not a peripheral human weakness uh, in an otherwise flawless Christian life. It's not like, well, you know, th- there's a little problem. The Bible says it is very serious sin. Complaining and continuous petty questioning stems from a sin, now here it is, of ingratitude. A sin of ingratitude in light of all the treasures and the grace and the mercies that God has given us. That's the problem with complaining, is it's against God. Some people say, well, I'm not complaining against God. I'm complaining against you, right? Well, you're, you're right in one ass. Every kind of complaining that you make, whether it's toward your husband, wife, boss, weatherman, whoever it is, is initially against that person. It's why it causes divisions in the church, by the way. When somebody sits there and says, hey, man, I'm going, to try to, I'm going to try to get back there and try to jump on the lights and try to help you all solve this, and, and, and here we are. And then they get done, and they're like, what's wrong with the lights, right? And then the person sits there and goes, I'm out of here, right? And, they, and then there's kind of divisions. Do you see how the divisions occur there? All because of the complaint and because of the nastiness between? And so this is what happens, and, and, then, and then what ultimately God says is, like, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem. It's a huge problem. It's ungratefulness. What it does, it draws our attention uh, towards what we think we want and need, which we're almost always wrong on, and it begins to call into question the benevolence and the ability of God to take care of us. God says and promises, I will supply all your needs according to my riches and my glory. Then when you and I say we don't have enough of something, something doesn't really up to the par of what we ultimately want, the clothing, the car that we drive, the money that we have, the school, the education that we have, we're ultimately saying and taking God and saying, you are not a good God. A person will sit back and say, well, that's not what I'm saying. God says your heart is saying that very thing. You have lost sight of all the riches. You have lost your heart is full of ingratitude. My heart is full of ingratitude. 
We, we, we took our eyes off of, of our unconditional love, the salvation, the adoption of sons, forgiveness, eternal life, the abundant life, and so, so much more that the Bible lays out that we are undeserving of that God has ultimately given us. And let me tell you this, God does not take this well. He doesn't take this well. As a matter of fact, we see in Numbers chapter 11, it's kind of an interesting thing. In fact, one group of people in the Old Testament, they begin to grumble and complain, and God just opens up the earth and it swallows them up. I love that. Um, so anyway, except when I think that if it was me, I would be swallowed up because I complain about complaining. And so Numbers chapter 11, I, I love the story. One of my favorite things, we see that the Israelites, you see, by the way, all these inclinations Paul is writing, and he's got like the Israelites in mind. You ever read about the Israelites? And you're like, dude, all they ever do is whine and complain. I'm sick and tired of them whining and complaining. Why in the world does it? They, oh man, I'm whining about, they're whining, right? And so you find yourself in this. And so what they do is, here's a story, if you don't know, God delivers his people, about 1.5 million Jewish people, who were in captivity in Egypt for, for, for about 400 years, and he gets them out of there by his grace. And he does it by shedding blood over the doorpost of a lamb. And then the death angel comes over, and they are saved from the wrath of God and their sin, and they escape. They now begin to go through the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land. Six weeks out, six weeks out, they begin to crumble and complain. They begin to go, where's the bread? I'd like to have some bread. Why don't we have some bread? Do you remember the big, nice, big, you can't really say yeast rolls because they didn't eat that, but those nice big loaves of bread that they used to have back when, remember how good that is? We need bread. And they're whining and, and, and finally the, the leader sits there and goes, God, we, we need to have some kind of bread. And God's like, I'll, I'll provide it for you. Just come to me. And then they go, where are we going to get this bread? He goes, don't worry. The next morning they see this stuff falling from heaven. And it all is like falling down, and they're like, it's, it's, it, we know what it is. What, what is it called? It's called manna, right? Manna in Hebrew means what is it? So it falls down, and they're like, ooh, what is it? I don't know, but that's a wonderful name. It's catchy. Hey, do you have any more? What is it? And yeah, you know, and here's, here's the manna. And so they pick it up, and so God supernaturally puts this, what is it, down, and, and they lift it up, and it's heavenly bread, and they're all sitting around going, hmm, this is good. You put some jelly on it. This is great. Toast it up. Mm, yeah, and they love to eat it, and so, so they're eating it for a while, but it doesn't take long before they sit there and go, this manna, this awful manna, this stuff that we're getting from heaven, from God himself, this heavenly bread which sustains life in the desert where there are no grocery stores that we have not had to work, and it's cost us nothing. We're sick of it. You see, they're complaining, right? Because now what they want is they want a sandwich. They want the bread, and they want some meat inside the sandwich, all right? They're tired of the mayonnaise sandwich. So they sit there and go, we need some meat, we need some meat. And so here's how it kind of unfolds. They actually say this, this is the, this is the English translation. They actually say, give us meat that we may eat. I love that. That sounds like picketing material, doesn't it? All right, we want meat that we might eat. It sounds almost like a Dr. Seuss type thing. We want meat that we may eat. I could go through that. But anyway, it sounds a little bit. And so here you have one point. It almost sounds a little, reminds me of, for you that grew up in the 80s, it kind of reminds me of the old Wendy's commercial, you know, where's the beef? Where's the beef? Where's the beef? And how so annoying, the old lady saying, where's the beef? Do you remember that? Anybody? Okay, all of you in, in their 40s. And, um, and so Google it, it's worth it. And so, uh, or YouTube it, or uh, whatever it is, and go back there. And then notice what happens is, 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 is they sit there, and it's 1.5 million people basically saying, where's the beef? And it begin, really begins to get to Moses. So Moses finally, I mean, he's, he's, he's interceding like crazy for God. Finally, he's had enough. 
And in 1115, he says this, Numbers, he says, if I find favor in your sight, O God, boy, what do you think he's going to ask for? If I find favor, if you love me, if you care for me, if I've been obedient to you, then kill me and put me out of my misery. That's what he asked for. Just take me now. You gotta, if you love me at all, if I've done anything for you, then take me now. I cannot deal with this complaining at all. And so God then, at this particular point, he deals with it. They keep complaining. And here's what God's response is. He says in verse 19, before this, he says, you want meat? I'll give you meat. Verse 19, he says, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until you gag on it. I will give you meat, he goes, until it comes out of your nose and you become loathsome to it. Now, here's why. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? He hates it because it's a complete disregard for all that he's done supplying and making a way of their salvation and taking them out. How dare us? So Paul says there's got to be a different way. This is an area that we all must work. In verse 15, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know what he's saying? Shining lights is talking about our witness to an unbelieving world. The, the actual Greek word translated is, is luminaries. It's, it's basically in the New Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, Greek, New, Greek translation of the Old Testament is what the sun and the moon and the stars are called. And the whole purpose is they give light, not for themselves. They give light for the world. He says, you are my luminaries. You are to shed light. You are to show what is right and what is wrong and what I am like to a lost and dying world. He goes, but you cannot do it by every other word coming out of your mouth complaining as it comes when you allow to work out your salvation through the help and the mercy of God where you become so infatuated the goodness of God there can be no complaint that comes out and he goes on and he basically finishes up here where he says holding fast to the word of faith so that in the day of Christ I may be proud and I will and, and I did not run in vain or labor in vain now notice this, if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. He is basically practicing what he preaches. He says, if I'm poured out as a, as a drink offering, if I'm put to death, if I'm enslaved, if I'm beaten, I'm not going to complain. You know what I'll do? I have all joy. Then he says in verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. No matter what it is, no matter what's going on, our focus and our mindset is on the glorious wonders and the grace that God has ultimately given us. And every time that you and I begin to complain about whatever it is, we're saying that, God, you are not a good provider. You are not a good, good father. You do not have to take care of me. And listen to me. Do not think that the world does not see this. Do not world, they, 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 they don't see the irony in the fact that we claim that Jesus, we sing the song, All I Have is Christ. Jesus is my all in all. He's everything. He's worth it. And then we turn around with the same lips and we say he's a terrible provider. No wonder the world sits back and goes, I'm not signing up for that. I'm not signing up for that. 
It's almost like in a practical, in the first point, it's almost like this too, where neighbors go around and they keep downing the church. Church members go around and they're downing people. I praise God we don't have a church like this, but I grew up in churches like this where they go and they down to their neighbors about all the horrible things that are happening at the church and the horrible pastor and the horrible deacons and the horrible this and the horrible that. And they get done and then at the very end, they're like, by the way, uh, would you like to come to church with me Sunday? Same exact thing to say God is all in all, but all I do is complain about what I do not have. And they sit there and go, what they complain about do they have? At least I'm living for it and I'm getting what they do not have. They don't see it. They don't understand it. Now, I'm going to close with this one illustration. Um, there's a gentleman here in, 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 in our church. His name is uh, Ed Cook. And some of you probably know him and know him well. And he and his wife have been a great blessing to me since I've had the opportunity to know them. And the neat thing about uh, Ed is Ed is a pretty positive guy. And um, now... You might know something different, but this is my experience with Ed. And, and uh, Ed is a guy that uh, every time you go to him, and the years that I've known him, I'll go up to him and say, Ed, how you doing? And he says the same thing each time with a big smile on his face. Brother, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Now, I've known Ed and his wife, and I've walked with them through some of the, the greatest difficulties that I can imagine. I mean, I sit back and go, I don't know how y'all are doing it. And even in the midst of all of that, his response never changes from week to week. Brother, how you doing? better than I deserve, better than I deserve. In fact, he says, and he's so consistent with this, that the people at his work, uh, they have a new saying. When somebody asks them how they are doing, they turn around and go, better than Ed deserves, better than Ed deserves. And what I love about Ed, not trying to draw attention, is he says it not as a lie. He says it because he really honestly believes it. When you and I begin to believe that we are treated better than we deserve and all that we have received, that is the key to working out our salvation based on what God has worked in us in order to obey and to please God. So maybe you, some of you are here today, and maybe you'd sit there and go, man, I've definitely got some work to do. How many, how many got some work to do? Lots of work. Listen to me. It is hard, hard work. Get in his word diligently, Every day, die a little bit at a time. Understand this is not do good preaching. I'm not telling you to do something and pulling yourself up in your own strength. I'm telling you to take what God has done in you and he's doing through you and take all of those graces and mercy and now live out the reality of who you ought to be. And the third thing is, in just practical application, let us rejoice with our mouths in all that God has done for us instead of using our mouths to complain that he fails in his provision for his people. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. Thank you, God. Glorify you in all things. Now as we come to sing, Lord, this morning and raise our hearts to you, God, I just need you to work. I believe you've been working in all this time, but this is just a time that we just take aside and, and we focus on the word and we respond to whatever it is that your Holy Spirit has been doing. Here's the call to change. Here's the call to respond in faith. God, would you grant it to us this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. If you want to know more about salvation, if you've got a question, you've got a prayer.